0: So I was today years old when I found out that a pig can orgasm for 30 minutes. What? I'm Lucy Smith. This is Science with Dr. Carl. And that's just one of the questions that he took on this week. Plus, can dead people still get goosebumps? And does Carl believe in love at first sight? Let's do this. It is science with Dr. Carl who joins you now. Dr. Carl, how are you?
1: Good. And peachy keen, uh, had a wonderful long weekend and I even did some repairs, like putting some flames on our old 10-year-old car, which is so gutless it wouldn't pull your granny off a dunny, but nevertheless, it uh, now goes 10 kilometres an hour faster because of the flames I put on the side, some decals, but I had to be careful to put two, one on each side because otherwise I stood the risk of going into counterclockwise or clockwise spins if I had the flames only on one side of the car.
0: (laughs) Carl, you're a mad dog, you're fully sick.
1: Well, I also have managed to fix up the microwave, and I put a new light bulb and a new motor into it. And now, finally, you can see what's inside the microwave, and you can see the turntable rotating. It was so much fun having a long weekend. I reckon we all weekend should be four days long.
0: Right, we need this. It's just time. It's a good time to just get those little pottery tasks done. I reckon just pottering around doing the life admin but a lot of people over the weekend went to rallies and protests across Australia and Mm. to kick us off we've got a text here from Jane in Brisbane saying Mm -hmm. I went to the Indigenous Lives Matter rally over the weekend I wore a mask and kept my distance as much as I could from people should I be worried about contracting COVID-19
1: almost certainly not and you are part of an experiment Let's do the first part. The number of people in Australia with the disease who have been diagnosed as being infected is of the order of 7,000 and a bit. And we're pretty sure, because of various reasons, that that is an accurate number. In some parts of the world, that number that they give is wrong by a factor of two or four or even 10. But in Australia, for various reasons, we're pretty sure that's accurate. So that means that the number of people who actually have carried the virus is 0.025% of the population. And the second factor is that we have pretty well squashed local communication. In other words, the only way that people get infected overwhelmingly, well, almost the only way, is if somebody comes from overseas and comes out of quarantine and then can infect people. But we're stopping local transmission. It's not as though in Wilcannia or Alice Springs, suddenly there's a cluster of five cases and we have no idea where they come from. So local transmission is down, but you have to be careful. We are still totally naive to the disease because only 0.6% of the population roughly have got have been infected, uh, sorry, no, no, hang on, 0.025% of the population have been infected. If we get infected, in Australia, the death rate of those who get infected is 0.6 of a percent. In Sweden, it's been 10%, we're not sure why. In other parts of the world, it's 6%, we're not sure why, but we're fairly sure we know what's going on in Australia. So, in other words, we still need to be thinking about what we do when we open up our borders and we've got to wait for the vaccine. Third thing, there are these people called super spreaders and we're learning about them. And it seems that they can keep on making active virus particles. So in most people like you and me, when we get infected by any virus, the virus comes and then our immune system kicks in and after a couple of weeks, it goes away. In a small percentage of people some of their cells have been permanently mutated and they will keep on pumping out non-functioning virus particles. So it's fragments of the virus, it's not enough to infect another person, but they will keep on registering as though they are positive to the test. If you do a swab on them, because the test, in most cases, picks up fragments of the virus rather than the whole virus, they'll still come up as positive but they're not infective. And then there's another bunch of people, and this is what we're learning about right now, and so the people who went on the marches around Australia will give us more data for this, There's who are super spreaders and maybe... of the population account for 80% of the cases. We don't know. We are learning now. Um, In our case, my daughter, Lola, went to the march and I was proud of her because since 1991, 432 Indigenous people have died in custody and there has not been one single conviction. Now, just think on that and we need to change that for the better.
0: Dr Carl, there's also been a story that's just been uploaded to ABC News. Victoria has recorded eight new coronavirus cases, including one person who did attend a Black Lives Matter protest in Melbourne on the weekend. Chief Health Officer Brett Sutton said the man in his 30s was very unlikely to have acquired the virus at the protest and was not showing symptoms on the day, but he may have been infectious at the demonstration. So if you were there or you want to follow that story, head to ABC News, abc.net.au. Dr.
1: Carl? And in general, uh, if you listen to Coronacast, which looks at the latest science, it seems as though the majority of infections come from indoors, not outdoors. Um, And so if you're at an outdoor event, you're less likely to pick it up than being indoors with somebody. Uh, And the worst case of indoors is being there with a whole bunch of opera singers. Now, um, have you ever been at a party with opera singers, Dr. Lucy? No. Okay, I'll give you some morning advice. When they tell a joke cover your ears. Opera singers are different from you and me. They can blast out such a volume that when they just sort of laugh, you know, naturally, oh, mate, your ears actually hurt. These are people who can fill a room 50 metres by 50 metres by, by 20 metres with sound. And so singers can pump out a lot of air at virus particles.
0: <laughs> so what you're saying is do not be in a room of opera singers if you don't want to get COVID-19
1: if they're carrying COVID, if, they, if they're carrying <laughs> the virus and they, they, they tell a joke, mate, you're going to get something.
0: Amy from Gibsland, you're first up. What question do you have for Dr Carl?
2: Um, I'm just wanting to know the little sweet spot above a dog's tail when you scratch it, most dogs love it. What is the human
3: equivalent feeling of that?
1: It's more than just rubbing your back, isn't it? Like when you get your back rubbed, you think, oh, that's good. And overall, it's a, a good feeling, but it's spread over the whole back. In most of us, there is no specific spot where you go, oh, my God, I'm in heaven. Dogs have got something which tells them they're in heaven and we need a vet to tell us about that special spot. And what's the magic number they should, the vet should ring in on?
0: one Amy and Gippsland will work on this one for you. Bronte in the gong. What's your question?
2: Hi. Um, So I just had a question about getting sick. So I always get sick when there's like exams happening at uni or um, and it's happened since high school. Like I got really sick during the HSE exam Mm. but I don't really feel that stress during exams. I actually feel more stress at different times during the semester. So I'm wondering is there some sort of scientific thing about that?
1: Yes, it's definitely real. And they did a nasty experiment on dentin. Dental students prove that it was real, and so they took dental students away, and they said, "Okay, we want to look at your sleep patterns, and you know, had nothing to do with dentistry, just because we you know we wanted some tame people." And your lecturer said, "You're free for a couple of days," and then they pulled a dirty trick on them. They, they monitored their sleeping patterns with electrodes, you know, the EEG, but also they had electrodes over their jawline to measure if they're temporomandibular joint was being active. In other words, you know how when you clench your teeth, they were specifically trying to measure that, but they didn't tell the students. They lied to the students. And they had normal sleep patterns and normal temporomandibular stuff. And then they did the dirty trick. They said to half of the students, they told them a lie. They said, oh, by the way, you do know that you're having an exam tomorrow uh, and this exam accounts for 60% of the year's work. And the students said no and they said, oh, we, we, I'm sure we... T- oh, no, I forgot to tell you. Look, anyway, everybody else is doing it. They were lying to them. Everybody else is, do- is doing the exam tomorrow. Um, see you tomorrow. And that night, all of their jaws were just clamping like crazy. Wow right? So even though you might think, oh, I'm not stressed by the exams, you are. They are stressful and many things happen. Your immune system can go, you can clench your jaws, you can end up with twitching of your legs during the night, you get leg cramps, anything can happen. Basically, I don't have any good advice except to be a real goody-goody and study real hard all the time so you don't worry when the exams come.
0: We just had a question from Amy in Gippsland about the sweet spot above a dog's tail, if you give it a little scratch, and someone said the spot on a dog just above their tail that makes them melt is like that because it is the only place on a dog and cat that they can't reach themselves.
1: Wow. Although cats are so flexible and dogs that they can even lick the nether regions of their body, so maybe they can't reach their... Look, we need a backup on that.
0: We need a backup on it. Josh, on the Gold Coast, what's your question this morning?
3: Hey, Kyle, how you going? Good. Hey, mate. Hey, um, I was just wondering if you believe in love at first sight.
1: Um, There's lust at first sight, um, but true love is something that you grow and mature rather than something that stays that way forever. And I accidentally stumble across what I think is a good rule, which is you start with somebody who has got lots of good qualities with regard to you, and then you try to make their life better so that their good qualities can come out. So you you try to make it be better for them to be. A better person, um, not, not meaning that they'll do the washes, the dishes or stuff, but their innate best qualities become stronger and then that falls back to you. So uh, you can start off with love at first sight, but you've got to keep growing it. it. It doesn't survive without continual nourishment.
0: Dr. Carl, can I come to you for any and all love <laughs> advice from here on out?
1: Well, I do listen to a few other people for that, like the psychologist on Netflix. <laughs>
0: right now we're going to go to jamie in queensland who is a mortician now jamie do you just want to tell us a little bit about what you do
2: uh sure um good morning i uh yeah as you said i'm a mortician so basically i prepare deceased people uh for their loved ones either to view them or have a funeral service wow and what's your
0: question for dr carl
2: So, Dr. Carl, every now and then, not everybody, but every now and then I will pull a decedent out of the fridge um, or cold storage room and they will get goosebumps. And I'm just wondering why that happens. Wow.
1: So the technical term is decedent, is that it? How do you spell that? Uh,
2: Decedent, D-E-C-E-D-E-N-T, I think.
1: So somebody who's deceased. And where on the body do you see the goosebumps, upper uh, limbs, lower limbs, uh, trunk, and is it symmetrical?
2: Um, It is symmetrical and it's usually on their limbs only, so I don't really notice it on their uh, chest. Uh, It's mainly legs and arms.
1: Really? And is it all the way around the legs or is it in sort of long stripes down the legs?
2: No, all the way around the legs, just like you or I would get goosebumps.
1: Oh, okay, so it's just like a cylinder, the entire cylinder. Wow. So yeah. what happens, I'm guessing, is that the muscles, the erector pili, E-R-E-C-T-O-R Pile, P-I-L-A-E, were there um, in the old days when we had lots of hair, we're going back two million years here, to lift up your hair vertically instead of laying parallel to your skin, to make you look bigger and more fearsome. So you'll see a dog sort of suddenly looks a little bit bigger because all the hairs are standing up. So there's been something that's gone on. Does this happen at roughly the same time as rigor mortis sets in? Look, forgive me, I have totally forgotten all of my pathology um, (laughs) about when rigor mortis sets in. Is it before or after rigor mortis?
2: Um, it's well, by the time I am caring for them, rigor mortis has set in and is either dissipating naturally or we're sort of moving them around to get rid of it.
1: Okay, answer I don't know, but this is fascinating. And what we need is a pathologist or forensic pathologist to ring in with the answer
0: 1300 three hundred O triple five three six. Jamie
2: or Dr. Carl, what's rigor mortis? Jamie. Rigor mortis is when the, I believe, Dr. Carl, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's when the muscles um, sort of tense up or almost solidify, and the body no longer moves naturally. Oh, and And that.
1: So the way it works
2: fairly quickly,
1: doesn't it? Yeah. I don't know the timing. You know more than I. I've forgotten everything, but I remember the <laughs> physiology. Th- think about a bunch of hooks uh, on a fishing line, and there's two sets of fishing lines with hooks on them, and the hooks sort of ratchet over each other and walk themselves along. And this is how your muscles work normally: they ratchet along and they relax. But something happens, and I forget. I've forgotten the exact physiology of the change that happens in in death. But they stay locked on, and then after a while, they come off, and I've forgotten that. So that's rigor mortis. But th- this is fascinating. So would you see it in say? One in every five, one in every ten, or every hundred, or every thousand people?
2: Uh, Maybe one in every ten, maybe less. Wow. Wow. Yeah, so probably a lot more frequently than we think.
0: Wow. Jamie, I have a quick question. I've heard that this can happen. Has a decedent ever moved or something when you've been working on them? No. Okay. (laughs) I feel like, is, is that an old wives' tale or something? It certainly is. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. Jamie, thank you so much for the question. We are going to go to Michael now in Melbourne. Dr. Michael.
3: Hi, doctors. How are you going? Good. Good. Hi. Yeah, I just wanted to find out, Dr. Carl, uh, when you close your eyes at night, in particular when you're going to bed, you have um, afterimages. Um, you know, essentially, you can see them on the inside of your eyelids like from the residue light. It, um, I'm not too sure if that's from the cones or the rods, which is the protective protagonists for it. But in my case, sometimes I'll be laying there at night, tends to go to sleep, and I'll get a, for want of a bit of a flash, like that after image brightens considerably, almost as if somebody's shining a bright light um, on my closed eyelids. There is nothing wow. there. And I'm wondering I'm wondering if this, I don't know, possibly it's not some, a condition, but from those after images, why are they there
1: in the first place? Okay, so... Are you seeing the after image brightening, or are you seeing separately as though somebody just shone a torch on both your eyes? So, it so ba- you, just one
3: indiscrimin- eye? you see the indiscriminate uh, after image patches. Like, so if you looked at a bright light and closed your eyes, you can see that immediately on the inside of your eyelids. So mm. those are fading. But then, out of you know, quite randomly, uh, on occasion, it'll almost see, feel as though somebody's turned on all the lights in the room suddenly, as if, to, um, and then you I open my eyes and it's still pitch black. So I'm getting this sensation that there's a very rapid increase of um, light, exterior light, but it's not. It's the after image. Hmm.
1: It's, it's like ah, okay. Let's, let's, okay. For, firstly, if you make the point of, as you're just going to sleep, stare at a window that has mm-hmm. got vertical and horizontal lines... Mm -hmm. and it's brighter outside than inside and you stare at that window then you shut your eyes, then you can see those horizontal and vertical lines. Secondly, the experiment has been done with people being decapitated, I'm sorry, in France Mm -hmm. where they very quickly looked at the retina after somebody had been killed and they could see an afterimage of the outside world. They asked the person being killed to do the experiment for them they said, yeah, I'm going to die anyway, what the heck? And they could see a very rough image of the outside world like a bright light and something else around it. Thirdly, what you're getting are what are called phosphines. Look them up on Wikipedia. P-H-O-S... P-H-E-N-E-S. And it's due to the fact that your light-detecting system is incredibly sensitive. For you to register a single flash of light, a single photon, what has to happen is that one molecule has to change shape into another molecule. From memory, it's 11 cis retinal, R-E-T-I-N-A-L, gets hit, which is a sort of a straightish molecule. It gets hit by a single photon of light And then it changes shape to 11 trans retinal, which is bent, or the other way around, and a bit of electricity is given off. And your eyes are so sensitive that when you're fully dark adapted, one single photon can be detected. So I'm guessing that there's... But then secondly, these can fire by themselves and we don't know why. They're so sensitive that sometimes they will just self-fire. And these are the so-called phosphenes. I need to look up on it again, but that's got you started, I hope, a little bit, Dr. Michael.
3: So essentially, my phosphenes are um, sort of firing off on a memory of a light or something on that light.
1: Yeah, right? w- w- or it could be that the molecule is just a, made just slightly differently, and the molecule might just spontaneously, without any input whatsoever, Fire off okay. and then – you, or you can do this with, with rubbing your eyeballs. Don't rub your eyeballs. Um, they always tell you not So if you shut your eyes and then rub your eyeballs in the dark, you can, as you sort of rub around, you can see these little flashes of light and the pressure waves are going into your eyeball about – an inch, 25 millimetres of golf ball in diameter, and they're bending or straightening this molecule, 11 cis or 11-trans retinol, into into its other form, giving off electricity.
0: Thanks, Michael. Fantastic, thanks, guys. Yeah, a bunch of people agreeing with you as well. We've got Jake in Brankston saying, I get this flash after I've closed my eyes as well, just a split-second flash. Someone else saying, yep, I get the torch at night thing, thought it was normal. And someone else saying, that happens to me too, the flashing, I look up thinking it's my phone.
1: And it could be something else called synesthesia. Mm. We used to think that you had five senses and that they were all independent, but they actually are intermingled. In my case, if I'm just on the point of falling asleep and then a car door slams, I don't just hear it I feel a ripple of sensation run down my body and it's really quite definite each time so there's a transfer the information comes into my ear but in but in addition it somehow activates my a part of my brain to deal with sensation and I can feel a ripple running down my skin so you might be feeling so, hearing something and it could be turned by synesthesia into vision. Dr Chris what's your
0: question? M-
1: Morning doctors long time listener
3: Doctor Carl, I work in the morning industry and as a result need to wear hearing protection often to drown out the noise of noisy tools. And I've noticed when I wear the hearing protection, particularly earmuffs, which are um, quite high quality, when I walk across the concrete, I can hear my bones or feet and knees cracking as I walk. Ah. And any internal sound like swallowing or chewing is amplified. Why is that?
1: Hearing is one of your five senses, of course, and it is an incredibly important defense mechanism or warning mechanism. So for the oceans, which cover 70% of the earth, the concept of sound is their main communication system because um, um, light, you know, vision and smell don't travel very well through the ocean. And we're also finding a problem, just going on a little detour here, that the... Uh, creatures in the ocean are changing their soundscape with regard to global warming. Whales have dropped the frequency of their sound since the 1960s by by 31 percent. And the second loudest creature in the ocean, the prey, the mantis shrimp, um, it's around 240b, has dropped its sound due to the extra acidity of the ocean has gone from pH 8.2 to 8.1, making interfering with their nervous system. And this means that there's a problem because creatures can't find their way back to the reef because it's not as noisy anymore. In your particular case, even though you don't realise it, you still have all of those primitive reflexes and you're looking around for a threat, you know, the killer dinosaur, the killer rabbit, whatever it is. And if you reduce what you're hearing through the air... That's the, uh, I forget what the pathway is called, but then the other pathway, the conduction pathway through your bones increases. So you crank up the volume so you're still getting an appreciation of the outside world to warn you of a threat from the killer rabbit and all that's coming through is the sound of your jaws uh, moving and your feet walking on the concrete. That's my hypothesis. That's in the field of evolutionary biology. Does that kind of help a little bit, Dr. Chris? you got me. That's perfect. Thank you. Oh,
0: sharks. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Person. Chris. We've got Scott here in Brizzy. Scott, are you going to take us to the ocean.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, the. Um, Lay on with Dr. We're, Chris. Sorry. sorry, yeah. So, we're, we're doing a sustainability subject at uni, uh, and someone mentioned global warming and uh, the sea levels rising. Um, and I put it forward that, you know, if we took all the boats and submarines, out, if it had dropped the level, just like when you get in a bath and it sort of lifts the, lifts the water level. So if it had have the same effect on the on the ocean.
1: Amazingly, I've actually written a story about this in great detail, which you can get by going on your search engine and looking up Dr. Karl D R K A R L A B C Ocean Level. Change, And here are the numbers for you. If you took all of the two billion tonnes of shipping out of the ocean, a little detour here, amazingly, that's the weight of all of the fish and sharks and whales in the ocean. So we've really put a lot into the ocean. Getting back, if you took all of our two billion tonnes of shipping out of the ocean, the ocean level would drop by six microns. A micron is a millionth of a metre and your hair is about ten times thicker. So the oceans would drop by six microns but at 18 hours the oceans would have risen back to the original level because we're raising the ocean level at the moment by about nine microns every day and it's increasing with each passing year. Does that kind of help you there, Dr Scott?
3: Yeah, wow. Thank you. That's got cool.
1: Yeah, okay, so go to the homepage story, cut and paste it as your own answer because your teachers haven't heard about the internet yet.
0: (laughs) I love this text that we've gotten through on 0439 and I don't know, I might get this person to do a show rap for us each week. Just saying, trippers, love is only lust that lasts forever and it is true that a dog cannot get that patch in front of its tail and can lick its bottom. It would be something to do with the way that their ribs collapse in on themselves when they're trying to reach that delectable spot. I have seen a dog. All in caps, that is the text. Fantastic. You can always keep engaged as well on 0439 I'm going to get that person to a summary every single week. Right here we've got Nicola
2: from North Sydney. Dr Nicola. Hi, how are you?
0: Good.
1: Hello, Dr Nicola.
2: Hi. Um, I read something really strange on a Facebook post yesterday, which I know isn't always a good source. Um, it said that pigs have an orgasm which lasts 30 minutes. So my question is, is that true? And how would you test that?
1: Um, firstly, we're dealing with truth versus non-truth. And is it true? Was it put there by Darren on Facebook or by a scientist? So we've got that whole thing of trust. And yes. For various reasons, for various different political reasons, we're moving into a, a, a zone where the professional opinion of experts is weighed as heavily as the opinion of somebody who knows nothing about it. Imagine, yeah. you know, like you've got some plumbing and you say, oh, I reckon you just put a bit of um, toilet paper around it and hold it there with a bit of glue, whereas the plumber would go, no, you've got to sold it. And you say, well, you've got your opinion, I've got my opinion. Mate, one's an expert knowledge and the other one's just opinion. So that's the first thing. Secondly, Facebook was right on this occasion. Um, pigs do orgasm for that long. And how would you tell? Well, one way would be simply to put a bunch of sensing electrodes on the skin around the groinal area Do pigs have a groinal area? I think they do. I think that's what you call it, the groinal area. And then you pick up the electrical signals and then you pick up a signal which is indicative that they're having an orgasm and then you just see it going on for for 20 minutes or 30 minutes and you say, okay, they're having an orgasm. Or if you want, you can then go even closer and put little electrodes in different parts of the body and then pick up stronger... More specific electrical signals, but that 's how they would say it. but the overall opinion that I came across was that pigs the professional opinion was that pigs can orgasm for thirty minutes, and maybe they really want to have babies or maybe they' just like having fun
0: are they <laughs> moving or like?
1: don 't know I need to look at Is it well just i, I can 't actually say this. I don't know, I'm, I'm worried I might get banned if I, yeah. from everything, if I start getting too yeah, heavily into animal sex, so we'll just leave it at that. Yeah,
0: Nicola, how did you react to that one on Facebook? Did you give it a wow um, emoji? I thought sort I of
2: just thought, it, yeah, I definitely gave it a wow emoji. <laughs> it's really interesting and I'd never heard of it before, obviously. That's crazy. So yeah, I was just curious. Yeah, thanks for the answer.
0: Oink, oink. We're going to go to Nick in Redcliffe now. Dr Nick. Nick, what's your question?
3: G'day, guys. I was just wondering... Um, People enjoy extremely salty food, but even the slightest, slightest, the slightest
1: salty drink is disgusting, mm. and I just don't know why. Ah, it's the amount of salt you have in it. So, with salt water out of the ocean, if you get a liter of salt water and bring it home and just let it sit there in a pot and let it evaporate over a few days, at the end of getting rid of the one thousand grams of water, you'll be left with three grams of salt. And that's pretty disgusting when it's naked by itself. But then taste is really complex. Let me give you an example. Suppose I give you a drink and it's got no sugar in it. And I say, what's that like? Say, it's not, I'm just checking how sweet you can go. You say, oh, no. And I just add a bit more sugar. I keep on adding sugar. And you say, yeah, it tastes a bit better. It tastes a bit better. And then finally we get to a point where you say, oh, no, that's terrible. It's got too much sugar in it. Okay, now I add a bit of salt. And suddenly, it doesn't taste as sweet. It actually tastes slightly different and better. So by adding cheap things like salt and sugar, I can make foods have their taste enhanced. Now, this whole area of taste science is really complex the people involved in it are called food chemists and they're the ones who specialize in making these things that you buy in the supermarket that are really delicious and very crispy and you eat a whole packet of them and at the end of eating a whole packet of them you've had half your daily amount of calories and five times your daily amount of fat and you're still not full so i'm putting it into the field of food science and i don't have a better answer than that but a food chemist a food scientist would
0: Earlier on, Dr. Carl, we got a question from someone who was seeing bright flashes of light when they closed their eyes, even without some sort of visual aid. Emma from Manly texting in saying, for Michael, who just called with Dr. Carl, my optometrist said, if I see bright flashes of light, similar to what he described, that it could be a sign of retinal detachment. He might want to see his local optometrist just to make sure that's not going on for him.
1: Uh, That's part of it. The classic case is it feels, in retinal detachment, as though a curtain has come across half of your vision. Mm. So the retina is a layer 0.3 of a millimetre thick on the inside of your retina and thanks to the radio show that you and I are doing, Lucy, there are two people on planet Earth who had their retinas switched on, stitched back on again. One of them was a young lady who was out of Melbourne at an exercise camp, a gym camp, and she got a little bit of a blow to the head and then suddenly she felt this curtain going across her head and she had her, her retina detach at that moment and she followed my advice, which is the following. Get yourself to an eye doctor and you've got six hours to do it. If you get it done within six hours, I'll stitch it back on. You'll be as though it never happened. After six hours, you've got this permanent loss of vision in one half of an eye. And the second case was a guy in America who was listening to our show live and then he rang his uncle afterwards who said, hey, something funny happened, and he said, okay, you've got to go and get the... Re-. So the advice is um, it is sometimes associated with retinal detachment, but if it happens time after time, obviously it's not. But if you do see this curtain coming across half your field of view you've got six hours to get to an eye doctor and then they can fix it and you'll uh, have it fixed up perfectly.
0: Wow, that's hectic. Dr Paul in Bendigo, what's your question this morning?
3: Hello there. I was just wondering what would happen if two black holes collided. Would it be the same as two suns colliding as in water spinning around a plug hole?
1: Ah. uh, Luckily, black holes are very simple. Um, they've They've only got three properties. Their properties are that they have mass and that they have spin and they have charge. Notice they don't have size. Black holes have a size of zero. Not small or really small or really, really small, but zero. The event horizon is the thing that has size, but the actual black hole has no size. We have measured black holes running into each other. And this happened in 2015 and I think it was the 14th of August and on that day two black holes with a mass around 30-something times the mass of our sun each ran into each other and created another black hole which had the the two numbers add together minus three. And in that collision which overall took about a tenth of a second as they ran into each other at the last bit and they were travelling at half the speed of light as they were orbiting closer and closer. They vaporised three times the mass of the sun into energy in a tenth of a second following Einstein's equals MC squared. The amount of energy they released was 50 times the amount of energy put out by every single star in every galaxy in the entire universe. And that pressure wave came rippling towards the earth. I think it was the 15th of August or September, came rippling towards the earth and the entire earth expanded and then shrank a little bit as the gravitational wave came through the earth. And people wrote a scientific paper about it and on the same day, In 1915, the Prime Minister of Australia, Tony Abbott, got booted out by uh, Malcolm Turnbull and here's a big question. What are the authors of the scientific paper talking about the black holes collided? There are a couple of thousand of them and the names of the first three authors were Abbott, Abbott and Abbott. A coincidence i don't think so so um getting back to black holes collide because they're so simple you get a certain signal in the gravitational wave that is fairly simple then more recently we've seen a black hole collide with a neutron star now a neutron star has size it's about 20 kilometers across and it's about three or four times the mass of our sun and it gave a more complicated signal and what we predicted we would get is what we saw. What we haven't seen is two neutron stars run into each other, I think. So, so anyway, the, the thing is we have definitely seen black holes collide with each other and it happened one and a half billion years ago in a galaxy or one and a half billion light years away. Does that kind of answer your question there? That's great. Magic.
0: Dr Carl is here. He is answering your science questions and right now we are going to go to the Goldie with Keith. Dr. Keith, what have you got?
3: Hey, um, I've just got a quick question. Uh, when you have like a mint of some sort and then you drink some water, why does it enhance the coldness? Also, like if you get some kind of menthol on your body and water hits it, why is it like it so much colder?
1: Uh, it's a coincidence that the receptor for cold also responds to mint or menthol. So uh, let me introduce the concept of a receptor via the old lock and key. You come into your house, you try to get into your house, you can't get in and your house has got a big perimeter, you know, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 metres and you put a tiny little key into the lock and suddenly you can open the door and get into your house. In the same way, each of your cells in roughly the same size ratio is covered with tens of thousands of receptors. So on your tongue and on your skin, you have receptors for cold and they're quite different from the receptors for heat and for pain and for itch and for pressure which is, and pressure ones are different from the ones for vibrating pressure. Okay, so you've got the idea that you've got these special receptors for cold and if the temperature goes cold, bingo, they send electrical signal to the brain. By coincidence, if you put menthol near them, they fire off. And so your brain's thinking, well, there's a signal coming in saying that uh, I'm getting electricity from that part of the body, therefore it's cold. It's just that coincidence that menthol will activate the same receptor as cold, and in the other end of the uh, spectrum, uh, capsaicin, the stuff in chilli, will activate the heat receptors. Another coincidence.
0: We've got Sid here, who is currently driving from Brisbane to Karatha. Sid, you're on the you're on the road. What's your question? Good
3: how are you going.
0: He going doctors. Good. Good. Thank you, Doctor Sid. I think I got you. That's good. Um, listen, so I've
3: got a good question. So, look. Well, we do long hours of work, and um, when you come home, like to go to the gym instead, I'll just have a 15 minute nap or a 10 minute nap, and I'll feel fantastic as opposed to if I have a two hour nap. I was just wondering, why do I feel more rested after just the, like a, uh, they call it a nana nap, like a 10 or 15 minute nap, as opposed to sleeping for like an hour or two when you feel really, really tired and mm. trying to get it?
0: Okay, so you're wondering why you feel more rested after just a quick 15-minute nana nap as opposed to a two-hour nap. I've definitely felt this. Dr Carl.
1: Um, Your normal sleep cycle is around one and a half to two hours. And so if you go all the way down... And then you get woken up when you're at the bottom which is normally about 45 minutes to an hour then you wake up feeling absolutely ratzo. if you go back up again and then wake up when you're just at the tip to be your first cycle you wake up feeling refreshed but then you might go a bit further and you're on the way down again and you wake up on the way down so you've got these cycles going through the night and you just feel terrible because your body is not properly i don't know lined up but A 15-minute nap only takes you part of the way down in that sleep cycle and then you can snap back. So you go through different stages of sleep called rather unromantically, one, two, three and four. (laughs) And in one, I can wake you up and say, Lucy, and you wake up and you won't even know that you've had your eyes shut. In number two, you'll know that you've had your eyes shut and you say, oh, was I asleep? In number three, I can wake you up just by saying, hey, Lucy. And number four, I've actually got to shake you before you Mm. wake up. And so it depends on how far you are down that pathway. And it varies with some people. There are some people, who cannot get any benefit from a 15-minute nap and they've got to have the full hour and a half. But there are some people, and I'm one of those, I'm lucky, I can have the 45 minute nap. And by the way, there's a the concept of the coffee nap, because coffee takes an hour, you know, 45 minutes to an hour to come good. And so you can do this thing where you have a cup of coffee, you then go to sleep. And when you wake up, um, you've managed to get past the deepest part of your sleep cycle. Maybe you say an hour and a bit you wake up and your coffee levels are high. So then you wake up and you're ready to go.
0: I'm a sucker for a, I'm just going to rest my eyes and then I end up sleeping for an hour and a half when all I Ah. wanted to do was just shut my eyes for a little bit. It's (laughs) not good. We're going to go to Chloe now. Now, Chloe, you
2: are 16 weeks pregnant. Congrats. Thank you. So what's your question? Um, I'm a carpenter. so obviously limiting work and power tool use as much as possible, but just wondering, Dr. Carl, if the sounds of the power, especially when you're so close with... A circular saw and a jigsaw and stuff, where you bent over and right next to it, can those noises potentially affect the baby's hearing development as the pregnancy continues?
0: Oh wow, because you'd have that proximity. Mm. That's so true. Mm.
2: That's right. Because you're right, you're right next to it, and some doctors are. It's it's hard when some doctors don't quite understand exactly what you do and the noise level So I thought, well. Dr. Carl might be able to answer this
1: a bit better because they're kind of getting mixed reviews. Yeah. Yeah. Look, uh, number one, I don't know. Uh, On one hand, the baby's got extra insulation, but on the other hand, it's really close and the sounds are really loud. What you need to do is go via your GP and find an obstetrician who'll go looking for you for the answer in Google Scholar. Now, if you don't know how to use Google Scholar, um, get somebody to show you, and the answer will be in there. But off the top of my head, I don't know.
0: Chloe, you're going to you're gonna have to check back in with us as well and let us know if you discover yeah, anything. Okay. All right. Well, we've got
2: our first um, obstetrician appointment on – oh, sorry, our first midwife appointment on Monday, but I just thought I'd give you guys a call
1: and see. Okay. See Okay. And make sure you look up Google Scholar. So search for Google Scholar, and suddenly you're getting – instead of people's just uh, opinions, you're getting professional information by people who have actually done the studies in a controlled way.
0: Thanks, Chloe. Dr. Carl, and thank you so much for coming through for Science on Triple J. We'll catch you again next week.
1: Thank you, and thank you for providing such good dance music.
0: Oh, yeah, you've been having such a boogie (laughs) Thanks for listening to another episode of Science with Dr. Carl. Remember, you can always leave us a review, let us know what you think, or chuck us a rating. I'm Lucy Smith. I'll catch you next week.